Hey, welcome to the CMO Whisper Show. I'm your host, Steve Olensky. Part marketing practitioner, part ad agency veteran, part journalist. I was a writer for Forbes for 10 years. I've had so many insightful conversations over the years with business leaders, to athletes, to celebrities, to, of course, CMOs. The only difference now is instead of sharing those insights through written form, I'm doing it this way. My guest today is David Edelman. David's the former CMO of Aetna, and he's currently a senior lecturer in marketing at Harvard Business School. I've known David well over 10 years, and we had an absolutely fascinating conversation. And where we focused, at least initially, was on AI and customer experience. One of David's recent HBR articles was entitled Customer Experience in the Age of AI. It's two topics that are very near and dear, at least they should be, for every marketer the world over. We had such a great conversation, and I learned something about David that I never knew before. He's a big David Bowie fan. Who knew? Here's my conversation with David Edelman. Thanks a lot, Steve. It's great to be here. It's really great to have you. I'm really excited about diving into so many different topics, including AI, which I know is near and dear to your heart. But I got to start with a question that I get asked all the time, and it's a very basic question, but I want to get your answer to this. What's the difference between marketing and advertising? Sure. So advertising is, in my opinion, the presentation of content to get people to take usually an action to just buy something or to imprint in their minds a brand image that will eventually be memorable for them to buy. Marketing includes advertising, but it is the broader discipline of creating a strategy to drive growth, especially growth from customer relationships, and then making that growth happen, which would include advertising, but could include other aspects of interacting with customers, such as thinking through the customer experience advising and working with the rest of the company on product strategy, thinking through even which segments you go after in the first place. Who is your customer base? It's the broader strategic science of driving growth through customer relationships. And in teaching a course, it's interesting because you know I teach first-year MBAs at the Harvard Business School, and most of them come in and think of marketing as just advertising, you know, they come in and they tell me that most of what they think about it is, is, you know, putting ads and not just on TV. Now, of course, it's digital as well. And then we do the cases in my class and they start to see the broader strategic implications that marketing should be the thought leader for in a company. And it opens their minds. And usually by the end of the semester, they're telling me things like, didn't realize how broad marketing was. If they're going to be entrepreneurs, not really realizing how much marketing type strategic thinking, how important that is to the business strategies they're building. And even people who go into finance or PE or things like that, you know, understanding the marketing strategy of the clients and companies they work with is absolutely critical. And they start to recognize it. And I get notes from them over the summer and afterwards how their brains have expanded to appreciate the strategic importance of what we do in marketing. Listen, we can talk the whole time on this about 
how marketing has always been looked at as kind of a stepchild, right, within a given organization. And maybe that's our next our next show when I have you back on. But I'm just so thrilled and quite honestly comforted by the fact that you're teaching <laughs> the future students because you lived it and breathed it. So I will rest easy tonight a little more knowing that. <laughs> so this is how I phrase this next topic, AI. I think it's the elephant in every marketer's room. I really do. And the analogy I like to use is a pool, right? Of how the AI pool is there. And some marketers are kind of dipping their toe, but the majority of them are still on the outside looking in. And they're looking at the person to the left of them and to the right of them, waiting for them to jump in to see how they thrive and if they survive in the AI pool. It's a really fascinating time, I think. And I really can't wait knowing I was going to have you on to talk about this topic, especially the two pieces that you've written over the past year for Harvard Business Review. So if it's okay with you, I want to jump into the first one. So in 2022, you co-wrote a piece called Customer Experience in the Age of AI, where you spotlighted what cutting edge companies like Brinks, which you highlighted in the piece, on how they use what they call intelligent experience engines to assemble high quality and highly personalized customer experiences UI. So number one, I am very interested in how are companies and how will companies and how should companies use AI to up their CX game? Yeah, so we need to, first of all, break apart generations of AI, not so separating that from generative AI, that there's a whole first generation of AI capabilities that's based on direct machine learning, which is not generative AI. It is about creating prediction models that can go through a ton of data and figure out for a particular individual what is the right next action they should take, what is the right next piece of content from a content library to send to them, and it helps to create predictions. It also does things like look through large sets of data and understands patterns and looks at segmentations and clusterings that normal human analysis would just simply not find. And so it can help you drive insights. It can help you make predictions. It can also do certain kinds of automation. For example, if you're going to do testing of a marketing campaign or something you're trying to do in customer service, it can help you figure out across the many different variables you could test in a campaign. You can test creative, you can test offer, you can test timing, and there's many different variables. It's a massive multivariate testing exercise. AI can help you set up the cells for testing. How would you define the test cells and then interpret the data to figure out coming out of that data, what have you learned from those tests that you can then feed back in to optimize your model? And this has actually been happening for a long time. Google, Facebook have for years enabled people to put up a whole bunch of ads, to put up an initial sense of a segmentation or targeting scheme, and then through their algorithms, help you understand who are the best people to target for which of your ads. This has been around. The question, though, has been, how do you make this more broadly available and bring it into the mainstream? 
So there are tools that are coming out that have actually been out before generative AI, before we even get to coming up with cool content and, and doing that. This is just hardcore analytic type capabilities that AI can do. And we tend to dismiss those. We're all getting caught up in the generative AI, but there's a whole lot of analytic stuff that the first generation of AI can enable that people still haven't widely adopted. So for example, in customer service, there's one tool called Pointillist that I talk about in the article that can look at a large mass of customer data. It can take data from many different data repositories that are tied to different channels. So it can look at who's interacting with your mobile app, with your website, calling into customer service, who's gotten which kinds of bills, how are they using your product if it's a digital product. All of those are separate databases rarely brought together. AI can actually find the identity match across all of those different databases and bring that together into one repository. Uh, you can actually combine data sets using AI tools, and Pointillist is one that can do that. Then Pointillist looks at that to find patterns of somebody's journey. So it timestamps when somebody hit all of these different channels and literally creates analytic maps of how somebody has traveled through your system. And that can help you do two things. One is if somebody calls into customer service, that customer service rep could know that, for example, you had just tried to do something on the mobile app and couldn't do it. And now you're probably calling in with questions about it. You tried to pay a bill and you couldn't do it. And so they can handle your call much faster, much better. You can even have prepared comments because you know this is a problem for the reps to handle. Eventually, with generative AI, you might even be able to route all those calls directly to a chatbot that knows of the problem and can tell people what to do about it. But it also tells you, it tells you of an individual, it also tells you that, oh my God, you're getting all these calls now going into the call center. They're spiking right after people were on your app and couldn't get something done. So what's the problem? And you can drill down and you can find out, for example, that people are having trouble paying a bill oh, the ones who are having problems paying a bill, that's on the iOS version of the app. Oh, we just released a new version of that. We thought we had upgraded it. It must have a bug. So let's get to fixing that ASAP. And you can find that out in real time. In 15 minutes, you could figure out that this is going on and make the correction. Whereas it would take you days, if not weeks, to pull together all the information, understanding why people were calling in, getting information out of the call center from the call reports. This is immediate. You could find this out. So people can now understand the customer journey immediately and be able to act upon that, either at a micro way for an individual or at a macro way when you're seeing issues. You can also then start testing different things. For example, if you have people who are repeatedly calling into the call center for things that they should be able to do themselves, you can now create many different versions of an email or a text message that you could send to them and figure out which version works best for which people 
using tools like I mentioned um, before that can help you set up the test cells and manage it. And the company I cite called OfferFit, for example, works with brains and helps them set up the test cells and optimizes a whole multivariate marketing campaign. But that could be for customer service too. It doesn't have to be just for sales. So there are these tools out there that before we even get to generative AI, that marketers have not really fully embraced yet. I think as you were saying all that, I was thinking that it's still, and I'll go back to my pool analogy, right? Just AI in general, forget about generative, narrative, all the different subsets, if you will, of AI, just AI in general. The sense I get is a lot of marketers are still on the, on the outside or I'm not sure. I know I need to be doing something, but I'm not sure what. Are you getting that sense? Well, what I'm getting is a number of different things. One is from a generative AI, from these new tools, you know, ChatGPT, MidJourney, all of the tools that can help you come up with content of various kinds. People are experimenting with that. They're doing it on a small scale basis. They haven't yet connected it hardcore into their operations, which actually I'll get to the second article I wrote about integration. But they are fooling around and they're experimenting and they're trying to understand safety, appropriateness, how these things work. I think there is a lot of experimentation going on, especially with generative AI. But these earlier tools that are out there that do analysis, that reveal patterns in data, that help you manage orchestration of customer contacts, that's not a generative AI type thing. And it doesn't have the same kind of risks. Those are tools that people are not yet understanding. All of the buzz is around generative AI, but a lot of those more basic analytic capabilities are pretty slow to make it into the mainstream. What I am starting to see, though, is some of the big suites, Adobe, and not Photoshop side of Adobe, but Adobe um, Experience Cloud and Salesforce, HubSpot, they are starting to integrate these tools into their core platform. So you're starting to see Braze in the email CRM space. You're starting to see these get integrated more naturally. So I think there's also going to be this tension between best of breed players who are coming out with more focused solutions and the big platforms. I think for a lot of companies, the more comfortable if the big platforms are offering it and they can integrate it. But a lot of the smaller scale capabilities are open technology that they can start using right away from what I've seen in terms of companies who are using these. So the the second piece you touched on that was published earlier this year was all about generative AI, excuse me, and how it'll literally change your business, which is a very powerful statement, which I'm sure I know why you said it. And a couple of the things that stuck out to me in that piece was you touched on how AI can help with disparate systems. And that was huge to me. You know, I have an Oracle background and I get how a lot of companies, whether it's they use Oracle or SAP or Adobe or pick any other usual suspects, have those silos of disparate systems. And to think that AI can help bring those together, I think would be highly intriguing. So that's what I'm thinking is how those companies can benefit 
if they think they have disparate systems, how can AI help with that? First off, one of the things that AI can do, especially generative AI, and I talked about this a little with Pointillist, is it can generate code. And so there are tools out there, some of which the big players have. There's also more focused players. One that I've worked with is called Narrative, that will look at one database, look at another database, and generate the code to combine them. Looks at the schema of the two different databases, looks at the nature of the data, figures out what adaptations you need to make to the data in order to normalize it and integrate it into one useful database. And companies are starting to use, just starting to use these capabilities, both to integrate their own databases as well as to actually buy outside data and work with partners if they have permissioned customer data to integrate that in. You see it in some of the loyalty programs, for example, where a loyalty program will have a number of different partners. And if the data is permissioned to be shared, they can use AI tools and APIs that they have to bring data together in ways that were much harder to do before. So AI needs big pools of data. AI needs to understand more context to be able to create the specific kinds of outputs that lead to one person versus another. It needs all of that data to understand the variations. And so you've got to bring together that data to do it. So there's one part of AI, which is not actually about the generative AI. It's the prep of the data to then be available for other AI tools that people don't necessarily acknowledge and think about. But if you're going to use generative AI systems, you need to have that capability. So that's really the the issue here, is using AI to bring that data together. So that's one part. The second part is that what generative AI is going to allow companies to do is to have very, very smart chatbot capabilities that are more advanced. So you will go in and you'll tell Marriott or whomever travel, you know, I want this kind of trip, blah, blah, blah. Here's all the details of my trip. So one thing generative AI can do will be to interpret that input from the customer, turn that into code. But in order to act on it, that system is going to have to reach out into a number of different systems across Marriott and possibly across its partners to be able to execute because people are going to be just typing in text and wanting to get stuff done. And so you can't have things siloed if you're opening up your systems to let people get things done. And so you've got to have the data capabilities integrated if you're going to go there and offer that. And generative AI makes that possible, but you've got to have the integrated systems to actually act on it. So you mentioned data and another line that stuck out for me from that second article where you talked about how the old rule of garbage in, garbage out still applies, right? Especially when it comes to integrating third-party data. So talk a little, maybe, is there a misconception maybe that AI can be the magic elixir, whereas it sounds like what you were saying was, no, no, it's still, you get out what you put in kind of thing when it comes to data. Yeah, so 
again, if you're pulling together data from different databases of yours, the AI can stitch that data together better than you could have before. It can find ways of matching and normalizing that data. But you've got to, for example, collect the data. The first one, let me give you a very simple B2B example. If your sales force is not entering sales qualified leads, for example, they don't bother to use Salesforce or whatever tool they're using to enter leads, you know, sales qualified leads properly, then you don't have data that helps you understand, for example, your whole B2B funnel. That would be the case even before AI, but it gets exacerbated if you want to use AI to say, okay, I have a company, it has these characteristics, I want to use AI, and they've interacted with us in these ways, and I want to use AI to figure out what's the next best thing I can do to nudge this company towards converting. Do I need to send them more content? Do I need to have you know, different people from my sales team contact them? What, what's the next step? And there are AI tools that are starting to work in the B2B space, but if you're not collecting the data in the first place, then they're not going to be able to do that. So it requires a discipline and process to be data first and making sure that in the operations of your processes, you're constantly collecting the the data exhaust, so to speak, from the interactions that you're having. Right. In that same piece, or I'm sorry, in your first piece, the 2022 piece, there was a term, it was a subhead that read test relentlessly. And you've mentioned the word test a couple of times here so far. And I want to touch on that topic. So the company I'm working for now, System One Group, we provide highly predictive uh, testing for brands when it comes to things like a a TV spot or a logo. You know, we have a very good uh, track record of predicting success or not based upon, you know, what we test. Why is testing so important? I mean, I know you mentioned the Brinks one how they're doing 50,000 tests a day, which is insane. They went, I think, from two or three a day to 50,000 a day. Now they're A-B tests. But just testing in general, from your experience as a CMO, from other stops along your career path, why is testing so important? Because testing helps you figure out how to do better as opposed to just simply doing what you've been doing. So I never understood why marketers just simply run a campaign, um, especially a campaign that has some kind of attribution capability on the back end, a direct response campaign of some kind, how they can do it without a test cells of testing new things that can drive even better performance. So that's the first thing. So the question at first is, can you just drive on average better performance, which is what a lot of A-B testing is, where You test champion versus challenger. This is the classic thing. But that's working generally on an average across all of your customers. With AI and with the new capabilities, you can now not just test on average. I can test to figure out what works best for Steve versus Dave. We have different characteristics. There's different data about us. I don't want to exclude Steve or Dave because I think both of them, in the case of Brinks, for example, they're both up for renewal. So it's not just a question of, I'm just going to target these people. It's that I've got to reach the market of Steve and Dave, but it's going to take different things to get Steve to act versus Dave to act. And I got to figure that out. And so I need to come up with the engine from a process perspective, 
which means designing constantly different kinds of tests, some of which can be the creative design, like the backdrop. It could be the text. It could be the incentive, the timing. I mentioned this earlier. There's all different variables that you can test. And using some insight about what I know about Steve versus Dave, come up with ideas for things that might appeal to them more and test, 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 because you don't know what's going to work. And you constantly have to test new things to see if you can get better. And what the AI, there's two things now. The older AI can help you set up and manage those tests. Generative AI now can help you come up with variations of the content itself so you don't have to keep creating those content variations. Now, with generative AI, you can come up with one creative concept and say, let me generate you know, a dozen variations. You know, there's a tool that one of my clients uses, Stanley.ai, after it's Stanley Kubrick, that can take a creative concept and then create, you know, a hundred different variations, variations for different segments, for mobile versus laptop. It can even create language variations. It can do all kinds. It can insert different images of people from that represent different populations, all of that. And then it tags all of those variations, which is really important to put the tags on it so that when you run the tests, you know which aspect of variation drove the better performance in Steve's world versus Dave's world. Let me switch gears a little bit to the advertising side of the aisle and AI, of course, because AI is just beyond fascinating to me. AI-generated ads. If I just even say those words, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? So there's two things that I think of. On one side, pushing the boundaries of creativity by coming up with designs based on the prompts. And I, you have to put in the prompts, but based on well-thought-through prompts, coming up with amazingly eye-catching designs and experiences. That's one side. The other side I hear, I sense, is a lot of crap. Being able to generate too many ideas and because you can do it cheaply and flooding all this crappy content out there that hasn't really been thought through. So I see both of those. I hope there's going to be more of the former than the latter. I fear there's going to be a lot more of the latter because it's cheap and easy. And you know, we'll, we'll see. But I think from a marketer's standpoint, the more crap you throw out there over time, I do believe you will downgrade your brand. I believe people will get tired of it. You'll hit diminishing returns and the distinctiveness of your message will be lost. Everything we do at System One Group is rooted in emotion, right? How someone responds to a stimulus, print ad, television ad, logo. My fear or my concern or my thinking is an AI-only generated ad, can that elicit the same types of emotions? I don't know that, but that I guess that will be the proof. Yeah, and when you see a lot of the AI content, it still comes across as generally robotic. I think that's going to improve over time. I do. I think the quality of emotion in that will, even within a year from now, improve. It will get there. It will also, I mean, there are already systems where the AI will comb through a brand's content library 
and look at the way you write things, the tone you use, the language, how you express things, and use that as part of the data set that's drawing upon for what it generates. So those are going to get better. There's no question. They are. And there, there will be a lot of that, but there still have to be some eyes on relevance, um, making sure you're not overloading, that you're really keeping the distinctiveness of your message and your brand out there. Exactly. And there's also things like inherent bias, right? So I think the ultimate, at least from my perspective, message is don't just rely on AI only. There has to be humans in the loop and there, especially for a while, just to make sure, you know, at a minimum, what you're generating, you know, is appropriate, you know, across the board. And so there, there's a lot of different kinds of risks, risks of drawing upon copyrighted materials that you didn't realize, risks of bias, risk of inappropriateness in the first place. And so, you know, just simply directly integrating a generative AI into your systems to just send stuff out, whoa, that is very high risk for a brand. Exactly, exactly. All right, I'm going to pivot into your former role as CMO. And when I have a CMO on, I like to pick their brain, either their current or former, but you have the experience to ask these uh, next few questions. What's a few misconceptions about the role that people have of a CMO? I think a lot of people think of a CMO as running a luncheonette where you take orders and you crank out marketing, as opposed to being a strategic partner in the C-suite who's helping the business figure out how to reach its goals and being a partner with bringing to the table the art of the possible within the budget and within the capabilities of the company what can you use marketing for to help achieve the business's goals? You also have to be the voice of the customer at the table, pounding on the table. When I worked at Aetna, you know, and um, Karen Lynch became the CEO of Aetna, just of Aetna, now she's C CEO of all of CVS, you know, she strongly encouraged me to bring that voice of the customer on the table, pound the table. Bring that in. Don't hesitate. She very, very customer focused and wanted to make sure I was loud on that. And that was terrific. That was great to have that kind of support. But not all CMOs have that. And, you know, many, and I counsel many CMOs in my time now, you know, are in situations where, you know, they were brought in with an expectation on their own side that they'd be a strategic partner. But often the rest of the business is just used to marketing being a luncheonette. And so they've got to change those perceptions because the rest of the C-suite, it's not just that they have a negative impact of marketing. It's just they, in many cases, they've never had good marketers in those roles, leadership. So it's something new. And that's you know an important education thing. I mean, I had that when I first came into Edna in 2016. They, there was never a CMO before. I never got a no, I never got negative, but I got a lot of how, how would that happen? How would that happen? And so, you know, I needed to do a lot of education and also prove things, you know, get wins on the board pretty quickly. Yep. Yep. Well, see, quickly, that's the operative word. And it's a good segue to my next question, which is, it's no secret that the CMO on average has the shortest tenure in the C-suite. Why do you think that is? Yeah, well, that's a mismatch again of expectations. There's accountability versus authority. 
that many organizations see the CMO and marketing as responsible for driving certain numbers in the business. But there's many variables that the CMO does not control. They do not control, in many cases, the product offering, the pricing. A lot of that is in product management these days, not in marketing. The classic four Ps that came up in the days of consumer goods in the older versions of marketing strategy, a lot of which came out of the Procter & Gamble school, were that marketers had all four Ps, including product and price. In most organizations now, that's not the case. Marketers may be involved and they're influencing it, but there is a whole discipline distinct that is product management. P&L owners often have the price variable and the product variable itself. And so marketers are caught in a vice where they're given responsibility to drive numbers, but they don't often have all the authority to control all the levers to do it. And I think there's also just a lot of expectation that with certain budgets, marketers can make a whole lot of things happen. And with constantly changing media landscapes, that's often hard. And there's a lot of pressure for short-term results at the expense of the brand. And in many cases, if a brand hasn't been invested in, the company is going to suffer, but the marketer can't get that investment in the brand. It's often hard to prove and it's too long-term. So there's a lot of things that, that challenge a marketer. The ones who are most successful, though, are the ones who take a more strategic consulting view, really position themselves in the C-suite as someone who is a partner in the overall business, who don't fall into the trap of just doing their thing as a luncheonette manager. Um, What I've seen are the CMOs who are most successful, who may have short tenures, but then move up is because they're taking a more strategic view. And so they're the ones who move into taking over customer experience as well, or they may take over a broader role in growth or move into general management. And that's because they're taking that broader strategic view and less of what might have been more ad agency view of just of getting the stuff out the door. Exactly, exactly. Let's, uh, in in the few minutes we have left, let's get into the personal side of David. Who's had the biggest impact on your career? Biggest impact on my career. I mean, I've had mentors all along throughout my career. I've been very lucky to work in organizations with extremely talented people where mentorship, first I was at the Boston Consulting Group. I then was at, I helped part of the team that started Digitas, the McKinsey, where mentorship was really important. And I learned a lot. I was also lucky to be working with peers in other disciplines who helped me become better. I remember when I joined Digitas, for example, the head of creative guy named Greg Johnson realized that I brought a lot to the game, but I didn't know that much about creative. And he really invested the time, gave me books to read and said, you know, you've got to get ahead of this. And I did. And that was just really valuable. I also have been very influenced. I've been lucky When I was early on, I was trained by a group called the Actors Institute, TAI, that BCG brought in for a number of what they called high-profile 
folks who they thought would be growing to people who'd be on stage and be more leader. And it was a program they had where I went once a month uh, to their studio in New York, where they used acting techniques to help business leaders develop stage presence, gravitas, leadership. And it was tough and it was hard. And it, you know, it was really stretched my comfort zone. And so that was incredibly impactful to help my overall stage presence, my confidence, my ability to just communicate and interact. And so I've long believed that the arts and business have more in common than people recognize. And that was a very direct manifestation of that, where techniques from acting were used to help me dramatically improve my whole style. Yeah, it's interesting that not, I would imagine you applied what you learned there, not just when you spoke publicly, but just amongst your team. Oh, of course. And it's about taking the pen and getting up to the whiteboard and driving the conversation and bringing focus. I also did a lot of theater when I was a kid. I music directed shows in high school and in college where you're working with a team. You've got very project oriented goals different people with different talents, but you've got deadlines and you got to make decisions and you got to make things happen. And there's you know, a lot of different opinions and somebody's got to just tie it all together. And so I was in situations where I often saw, uh-oh, we're not getting where we need to go. Let me put this out there. And I saw you know, how to motivate teams, motivate the band, the pit band that I conducted. And so you know, a lot of those are just totally relevant to business. Right. Exactly. Okay. You've seen on my screen behind me, the wall of album covers. I love it. I love it. Yep. I'm a very monster, huge, eclectic, as you can tell by the albums that you can see on your screen anyway. So I always like to ask my guests about music and specifically, well, I like to bring up my favorite song. My favorite song of all time is, is a song by, uh, it's called Lean on Me by Bill Withers. It's from the seventies, but I've, I've loved it ever since I've heard it. And the lyrics really resonate with me today. And I know ahead of this, I asked you what your favorite album was, not song, but I asked you what your favorite album was. You told me David Bowie's live album called Stage. What is it about that album? Or is there a specific song on there that just resonates with you? I have always been a huge fan of David Bowie and his ability to bring different styles into his repertoire and take each of those styles and push it, push it as far as it could go with incredibly talented people around him. He's always surrounded by top talents who push him and push the music. So it's while David Bowie himself is the magnet visually A lot of it has to do with the combination of all the people around him and how he gets an amazing alchemy out of that. And whether he moves into different genres from, you know, early pop that he did to way edgy, harder rock, and then really extreme experimentation, which was in the period when Stage was recorded. Stage was recorded at a time when he had done a series of albums in Berlin with Brian Eno that really pushed the notion of not just music, but sound and the types of sounds you can make and how those sounds fit together, how they create a message through the music itself. 
of how it's coming together. And on that album is the, I think, 11-minute version of Station to Station, which is an unbelievable piece of music that just gradually builds and builds. And it's a song, it's a suite. And it was from a time in the 70s when there were a lot of songs that were suites of various kinds. Stairway to Heaven, uh, all the way to Scenes from an Italian Restaurant by Billy Joel, Jungle Land by Bruce Springsteen. I mean, there's endless numbers of these songs that were sweet. So it was a popular thing in the 70s. But Bowie just goes all the way to the edge and brings it together in something that's just amazingly compelling. So that album, just in terms of the way it challenges you as a listener and the way just live, this not recorded, this is live. He brings those talents together to do that. I just, I've always found it to be inspiring. So you mentioned the word sounds multiple times there. I've landed on this phrase, the sound of marketing, right? And and the way I want to pose it is, what does marketing sound like? (laughs) Good marketing attracts. It attracts you. It connects with something emotional in you. Now, that can be through some type of positive, um, more upbeat, more easy to digest, or it could be from things that are more edgy. But it is something where the sound pops and is recognized and connects with something in you emotionally, which, of course, good music does too. Now, it may not be through the literal sound of the marketing, but through the messages, through the look, it creates something that pulls. And the more it can tap into your emotion, and everyone has different emotional levers. That's another thing. The sound of the same marketing will sound different to different people. It is not always the same because different people have different contexts and lived experiences. And so the sounds that will appeal to them, so to speak, using that metaphor, are going to vary. And I think that's one of the things digital is allowing us to do is vary that much more and experiment coming back to our earlier conversation of what works for whom. But I think that the sound of marketing is a sound that needs to resonate and connect with something you would like to accomplish. I love it. Last question. What do you want the world to know that we have not already talked about, David Edelman? (laughs) About me in, in particular? The, the floor is mine. I, I, I think what we've learned, uh, what we've talked about today covers, for me, one of the most important things is just so much of the way I think about my style and everything is this connection between arts and business. It's why I'm in marketing. Marketing has left brain and right brain. So much of the arts is left brain and right brain being brought together. You know, I often wonder if I picked a different career, might it have been like architecture, where there's a lot of left brain and right brain involved in that. And so to me, it's about all of those aspects, the creativity with the hard analytics. It's about individual initiative, but teamwork and surrounding yourself with great people, but you also have to be a mentor. And so a lot of the lessons that I've gotten from the arts and that I also bring from business. I mean, I play with a combo now through local music school and, you know, a lot of it goes both ways. And so to me, that's just so important. The former CEO of BCG, the late John Clarkson, wrote an article, Jazz versus Classical, 
where he posited that even though classical is considered one of the highest forms of art, that most orchestras, you take a piece, you play it, you bring different emotion to it, but you play the piece. Jazz is about how you take a structure and great people work together, build on it, play off of each other, and that his belief that the great businesses are guided by leaders who are more jazz-oriented than symphony conductors. And I thought that it's just a classic piece of writing that he did a few decades ago, and it's always been an influence on me. It's a great analogy. It really is. Listen, on that note, I want to thank you for being my guest. It was truly my honor. We could go on and on. I already know we're going to have at least one more episode, if not more, because I could talk to you forever. David Edelman, thank you so much for being my guest today. Sure. My pleasure, Steve. It was a lot of fun. Well, that wraps up another episode of the CMO Whisperer Show. I hope you shared this episode with your friends. And if you have not already, please subscribe to be kept up to date on all the latest episodes. And if you're so inclined, leave me a review on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.